0: Father, we thank you that this confession is true because of the work of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. On that cruel day on Calvary, when the wrath of the Holy God was poured out for the propitiation of our sins, indeed all the sins of the elect, that moment where atonement was satisfied in our Lord and perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb without spot or blemish, then and only then could man say with any confidence it is well with his soul. Then and only then could we say with any assurance because of this promise fulfilled that there is hope beyond the grave for those who place trust in that sacrifice to justify, to purify, and to usher them into the presence of Almighty God made clean by the precious cleansing agent agent of Christ's blood alone. And so we declare those who have faith in this work, this Son of God who died on our behalf We say, the author of this song, it is indeed well with our soul. Now as we turn to your holy word, I pray that our souls would be nourished by the life-giving truths therein contained, whereby the revelation of Christ our Lord throughout the ages is made known in the pages of holy scripture. I pray that we would see your sovereign design, ordering all things according to your decree, placing everything in order that you might be glorified and your people equipped. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word is a cohesive whole and by the spirit using this time today, we might see more of the threads that connect the end to the beginning as you are its author, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. We thank you, Father, for these moments that we have. May we treasure them for your glory and namesake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious gift this morning is to us. What a gracious gift the Holy Word of God is in our hands today, in our hearts as I pray the Spirit applies the preaching of the Word to our souls. Would you turn with me in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 11? Our primary passage this morning will be verses 1 through 9. This is the account of the famous Tower of Babel. We all have, I trust, some familiarity with this story, perhaps from stories we read as a child. Some of these may shape our perception of the account and might limit our understanding. My challenge in this morning's message, and I pray the Spirit's use of it today, would be to open our eyes to see the truths that are here for us to understand more about the work of Christ through history, to ransom a people, and to judge his enemies in the context of the unfolding events in a post-fall and post-flood world. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to understand or to enlighten the understanding, our understanding of of Babel, the Tower of Babel and the city, in context of future history. History that will unfold through the course of Scripture. Said another way, today's message seeks to reveal how the account of the Tower of Babel and the events surrounding it Relate to God's plan unfolding through history. The title of this morning's message is Twisting Heaven's Arm. Are you familiar with that phrase? I twisted someone's arm. What do we usually mean by that? I manipulated them, I coerced them. If you imagine taking someone's arm and some, you know, move or whatever, you twist it behind their back and you say, Hey, can I have $10? They say, no, I'm not going to give you $10. It twists a little harder still. Fine, fine, you can have $10. The twisting of the arm is to coerce, to manipulate, to try to seek your own ends by controlling another. I submit to you that this is the heart behind this architectural project, this civic undertaking of the city of Babel and the tower by the same name. It is the people at that la- in that land of Shinar at that time, attempting to twist God's arm to their advantage. Will they be successful? I think you know the answer, but let's see it unfold in scripture. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's word? As these verses are proclaimed in your hearing today, listen to God's infallible word in Genesis 11, verses one through nine. Now the whole earth had one language, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down, verse 5, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down And there confused their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me remind you of the themes featured in Genesis chapter 10. We remarked how the genealogy of Noah's sons is divided by three names. Uh, Children in the room, again, remind us, who are the sons of Noah? Shout out their names, sons of Noah. Somebody else? Sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, okay? Questions are going to get a little harder. Now, does anyone remember from last week's message, um, the band, I called it, uh, that helps us remember the legacy of Japheth. So what was Japheth known for? It's Japheth and the? Coastlands. Coastlands. Okay, someone else besides my son in the front here. Um, So Japheth and the Coastlands. Next in the lineage is Ham. What is Ham known for? Ham and the? City builders. And then the third one, Shem. Shem. Does anyone remember what Shem is known for? Significant sons. So remember those three phrases. First of all, the coastlands will feature in part into our message today. Secondly, the city builders, which will feature prominently in our message today. And thirdly, significant sons, which will feature prominently in our next message, Lord willing, from this passage. So remember that. Now, in Genesis 10, we see a setup for Genesis 11. Genesis chapter 11 recalls specific events instrumental in establishing the individual identity and geographic dispersion of the clans, languages, lands, and nations of Genesis 10. Remember last week we said, sometimes in the Bible, time overlaps. So in one sense, most of Genesis 10 actually happens after Genesis 11. Genesis 10 gives us a record of all the many varied languages and nations. And then Genesis 10 gives us the events that were the impetus, they were the instrument for that dispersion. So how did it happen that this list of nations was so great, became so great in Genesis 10? Genesis 11 answers. This record in Genesis 11 is foreshadowed. In chapter 10, as Moses describes the descendants of the cursed line, which son of Noah's children was cursed? Was it Shem, Ham, or Japheth? Which one was cursed? Shem, Ham, or Japheth? Which one was the bad guy line? Anyone remember? Ham, Ham, that is correct. Specifically, his son Canaan was cursed. So as Moses, the author of Genesis, describes the descendants of the cursed line, he does so with special mention of Nimrod. It's a funny name. Genesis 10. Let's learn a little about Nimrod and remind ourselves. Cush, verse 8, father Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was, yes, Babel. It goes on to list some other locations associated with Nimrod and company. Among them, verse 11, from the land he went, from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, recognizable names. Later, another name recognizable in the greater course of scripture, Egypt. And then we see Philistines are associated with him as well. So here we have a great hunter, a mighty man, a city builder, Nimrod. And we have a record of his legacy. Among the things that he accomplished was buildings, cities, civilizations in Babel, Assyria, Nineveh. And these, in this lineage of city building, also relates to the account of Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, and many others we recognize from Scripture. As we look closer at the original language, the name Nimrod actually means we shall rebel. Nimrod means we shall rebel. Nimrod is the archetypical strongman and pagan hero. He's the guy that people cry out, remember the Israelites, give us a king like the nations. That would be a cry of people that could be restated perhaps, give us a king like Nimrod. A guy who's impressive, has accomplished great things, is an imposing leader, is a great warrior, is strong, is influential, whose name is renowned and known and feared. A guy who has success, who's conquered, who has a long train of exploits behind him in his civic leadership. Nimrod built cities to establish himself and society on the name of humanity rather than the glory and the name of God. And in this way, his name is fitting. fitting. He indeed rebelled. This should remind us of Cain. Nimrod, like Cain, had this impulse to defy the word of God and, by doing, by, and uh, in defying the word of God, he did so by building cities. Just a reminder again, Genesis 4. Cain despised, resented the punishment that he said was greater than he could bear. He was condemned to be a wanderer. Well, did he embrace this? Did he repent of his sin? Did he submit to the discipline of the Lord? No. It says, when he built a city, Cain knew his wife, she conceived, bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So much like this impulse of rebellion of Cain against the discipline of the Lord to build a city, now we have a man, Nimrod, whose name in fact means, we shall rebel, building many cities. And as he establishes them, note again, he does so on the basis of the glory of man not on the glory of God. The blueprints for Babel are typically illustrate the perennial problem of unity unity and diversity. Here's the question. Now that man has thrown off God's word and law, how will he organize himself? Well, he will do so in the vein, along the principles of Babel. And that's one of the purposes of the story serves, is to give us these kind of overarching principles, example of what to expect when man seeks to secure his future independent of the word of God. Questions like this arise and are answered in our text. Do we find our unity in common cause with our fellow man alone? Is that where true unity is developed? We are one nation. Is that sufficient unity? Or must we be one nation under God? The scriptures answer that there is no unity out of many one e polubris unum or whatever our motto is. There, that is a futile and vain enterprise unless the nation indeed is under God and not under God in name only, under God by following closely to his covenant and his law. Do we find common cause with our fellow man or do we find unity in the true worship of the God who has made us and covenanted us? with us. Remember, Noah, the very first person or the human representative representing all peoples who will descend from him, received, co- receives covenant instructions, the word of God for the continuation of the species and the order of our affairs in the Noahic covenant, if you will, that includes that rainbow promise after he exits, disembarks from the ark, And among these instructions are the law of God incorporated into the order of society, including the institution of civil government. We go on. Do we find true individual meaning as we live in submission to our creator and savior? Or do we preserve our identity as individuals securing the authority to define ourselves and make our own name? This is the question that Babel raises. Do we secure identity for ourselves By naming ourselves, by securing authority, by presuming authority to identify ourselves, or do we find our meaningful identity as servants in submission to our Creator and Savior? Which view of social order is sustainable? Modern America, who says you can be any gender you imagine yourself to be, or the Word of God, which says... In the beginning, God created them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. The one is a very narrow parameter for sexuality and identity of the human family. The other, all bets are off. It's open anarchy. And don't be surprised if it gets so confusing if we give grant to ourselves the authority to identify ourselves if it gets so confusing that we lose the ability to maintain any cohesion, and pretty soon, it's impossible to communicate with each other anymore. Just let me, I can't resist a brief illustration. Did anyone see that movie clip of the Democratic Socialists of America or something trying to have a convention? It went something like this. Um, Point of personal privilege, John Smith, Utah, he, him announcing his preferred pronouns, would you guys please keep it down? I'm very triggered by these external stimulants or whatever. And somebody else said, you know, John so-and-so from Connecticut, point of personal privilege, he, him, please don't misgender the majority. What in the world did he mean that he was so offended because the guy who had preceded him had called everybody guys? without knowing that there might be some guys, some gals, some Zs, some Zers, some unicorns, some walruses, some amoebas. Who knows? It's going to be impossible under these new terms in our society to communicate with one another. You can almost see, if I may suggest, the principles of Babel unfolding in that one example. The language will get so confusing that the order of that meeting, and the order of society will implode on itself and be destroyed. Why? Because God will not be mocked. No other view of order is sustainable other than that which acknowledges the God who has created us and sustains us by the word of his power and has ordered things according to his law and covenant, no exceptions. Babel teaches that the only secure footing and coherent worldview is found in covenant with the triune God of scripture. Other schemes will not stand on the day of the Lord. Other schemes will not stand on the day of the Lord. And we find the day of the Lord in context here. So key elements to understanding Babel, understanding Babel in the context of God's greater plan, worldview, view of history, and so forth, his word, his law, his covenant. There are three key elements, perhaps we can organize our message under to understand Babel. Number one, planning as subversion. So the planning of man to subvert the word and will of God, that is featured prominently. Secondly, purpose and motive. The purpose and motive of the ungodly is seen in why they do what they do. And then thirdly, Greek word, parousia. It means the day of the Lord. Parousia is used 17 times as I recall in the New Testament. It's a Greek word that refers to the day of the Lord or the second coming or coming of the Lord. There are parousias, if you will comings of the Lord in judgment where the day of reckoning where man must answer to his creator will arrive and does arrive even in history. And we see a parousia of sorts, even in our text today. Key elements of understanding. Babel, let's consider number one, planning as subversion. Eleven one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Let's pause there. There are a few keys and contexts additionally to notice, to make this point. The author, Moses, is giving us some details that help us understand what's going on. What is in the air that these people are breathing? What is the cultural values that they affirm? First of all, they affirm foundation for progress, progress is found in their shared human experience. These people assume that because they had one language and the same words, their hope for progress, their hope for security, their hope for salvation, deliverance from the curse, if you will, is found in their shared human experience. Let's find security, let's find safety in binding together around something that we have in common, our culture. But if that culture is not based on the word of God, that is a vain sense of security, to be sure. Modern progressivism holds out hope in the same way that the uh, pagans at Babel uh, were deluded by. Foundation for progress is found in the shared human experience. What mankind can accomplish by the sum of his ability and the sum of his synergy working together will eventually perfect our condition, um, hold out hope for the future. Technology and stuff comes to mind as we see the uh, vision unfolding by pagans, to uh, correct the errors that we have right now and uh, make these adjustments on the dials of uh, society toward a better end. Uh, Secondly, in the context here, there's an eastward direction. An eastward direction. The whole earth had one language. It says, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. You may remember uh, what direction were Adam and Eve cast out of the Garden of Eden. They were banished to the north, no, south, west. not west, east. east. They were banished to the east. Now Cain kills his brother Abel. He is cursed additionally. He is banished even further from the garden. What direction is Cain pushed by the, by the uh, discipline of the Lord, by his condemnation of his actions? Further east. And now further east still. So there's something perhaps to this eastward direction in the context here. It illustrates further east alienation from the hope of Eden. Further alienation from the presence of God. Eden was a sanctuary. In fact, as Ezekiel tells us, on a high place, a mountain, it was the guarded presence of Almighty God. The cherubim, the agents that were there to guard the holiness, the sacredness of that realm of God's presence now guarded Eden from man himself. And the further you got from that Visible from that evident presence of the Lord in our text today, it represents further alienation from the covenant, further alienation from the hope of Eden. And then thirdly, Shinar. This is the future home of Babylon. We mentioned in our last message, Daniel chapter 1, opens on the plains of Shinar. This is where the exile occurs. This is where Babylon has set up camp, a similar name to Babel. Babel in the Babylonian tongue meant gate to heaven, as I understand. So they were still under the delusion, even centuries later, that the hope of Babel might be a reality in their land. And yes, as we've already pointed out, we are under a similar delusion in our day and age. Majority culture around us still holds out hope that mankind can access a better future of his own devices. So here we see a stage set for the next few things that happen. First thing that happens is a committee is formed in verse 3. They said to one another, come let us make bricks. Notice that phrase, they said to one another. Might seem like a throwaway line, but it's important. This is the voice of the people that's considered authoritative Binding, this is where the good ideas are to be found from, not the voice of God. The voice of the people is seen to hold out hope for the future, not the voice of God through their ancestor, Noah. They appeal to the people. They say to one another, come, let us make bricks. This is hope for salvation through democracy, if you will. The voice of the people have spoken. They have authority. The will of the majority will secure us a future. We will vote on what to do and as many, you know, and as many people we can gather to our position, we'll consider that political capital and just cause to continue with our plans. The voice of the people versus the word of God. The idolatry of democracy is illustrated here. A covenant relationship is established horizontally, denying the vertical So a covenant relationship is established between human beings. In other words, there's an understanding between humans. They unify, they pool their efforts, they agree on something to accomplish. But what is lost? The vertical, the most important relationship of all. Is God pleased with this plan? If not, the will of the majority only demonstrates the collective depravity of the human heart. Something is not right just because man votes on it, something is right, ethically sound, morally straight, if the Lord has decreed it in his holy word. That is most important. So the prayers were offered to each other, people making appeal to the state, if you will, to the collective. They were not communing with God. They were not seeking hope and help and direction from the word of God delivered to them through their forefather, Noah. Noah. This was a covenant of their own design that betrayed lack of faith in Yahweh. Yahweh had promised to keep man safe if he would follow, if man would follow his word. He had showed that promise and sealed it with a covenant sign. What was the sign to Noah, you guys, and everyone that followed him, that the earth would never be flooded again? What was the sign? The rainbow. rainbow. That is correct. Thanks, Theo. But the people were not... Uh, This sign was not sufficient to them that their future was secured under the God of the covenant, the God of the flood, the God, in fact, of the promise keeper, Yahweh. They wanted something else. And so they set up an anti-covenant, if you will, and proceeded according to the will of the majority, seeking their affirmation from their fellow man to establish what they will do next. This leads to the next phrase of note, which is an anti-creation phrase. Verse 3, they said to one another, they said to one another, which we just covered, then the next phrase, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. This language is similar to Genesis chapter 1, in fact, vir- virtually identical, 26. This phrase has been uttered before, has it not? Let us make. Then God said, Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and so forth. Now we have an anti-creation voice. Instead of looking to the Lord who made them, they say, let us make. Let us endeavor to create. Let us make bricks. Let us make a city, a civilization. Let us make a future for ourselves, according to our ideas, according to our abilities, in our image, if you will, in order to secure our future. This language expresses the intent to usurp the created order and the prerogative of God. They were planning to subvert God's will and God's plan. Instead of looking to the God who had established, according to his word, the terms of the world, creation, and also hope for the future, they were rebelling against this. In the spirit of Nimrod, we shall rebel, they said, let us make our own world. Let us make our own society. Let us do our own thing. This, in addition, was an anti-cultural mandate. Why do we say this? Well, the people were motivated because they feared being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We'll cover that motive a little more in the the future, but notice back in Genesis 1, a direct commandment from the Word of God, reiterated in Genesis 9. What did God tell Noah? uh, Adam and Noah to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 9, God reiterates to post-fall man his calling, his vocation. God bless Noah and his sons, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now mankind is afraid to fill the earth. He is afraid that he will be dispersed. So in direct violation to the word of God, he subverts, he seeks to subvert God, God's order, he rebels against it, and he says, well, we're going to stay put right here, and we're going to make our own little utopia. We're going to secure our future our way. We're going to beseech the voice of the people, and we're going to create the world the way we prefer it, planning a subversion. Third point, they were technologically advanced. This is interesting because we often think of ancient man as very crude, primitive. Not Not the case says they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Verse 3, before that it says, let us make bricks, so this is their plan, and let us burn them thoroughly. History, archaeology, and even their context uh, indicates here that they are going the extra mile to do something that will last a long time. Um, As I understand it, virtually all the ziggurat, you know, these uh, kind of pyramid, flat-top type buildings which were part and parcel of the pagan worship (coughs) of ancient man, (coughs) presumably contemporaries of Babel, they were made from this similar similar, uh, formula or this similar approach, this building uh, mechanism. That is, these ziggurats in the Near East were made from bricks that were uh, baked, and then this bitumen was used for mortar. But these bricks were going to be baked extra hard. They were going to take extra time. They were going to spend their collective efforts, their money, and the best technology that they had available to them to, uh, in most ex- expensive methods to preserve for themselves a prominent and important building that will signify the values of their culture, of them as a people. They will pour their energy, their money, their efforts, their planning, and their technology into this enterprise, into this project. This raises a question, does it not? Can you look at a society and look at their most technologically advanced projects and see who they worship? In part, you can. I mean, this is easier, more objectively, um, it seems to be the case, in the study of ancient peoples. If you're looking for what was most important to the people, you look for the buildings that last the longest amount of time. You dig through the rubble, and what do you find? A ziggurat, a temple. You find a coliseum among the ancient Romans. You find a court building. Or if you're digging through the future rubble of America, you find a public school. You find a Capitol building. Jack, my son, is in in Washington, D.C. I've been there, and it's been a few years. But one thing I distinctly remember is miles and miles and miles and square acre after square acre of chiseled, carved marble. If a nuclear blast you know, hit, uh, those buildings might be more likely to survive. But what would they indicate? Not our ability to survive, but as much as that which we valued most. Where man puts his energy, his effort, and his collective intelligence and his technology and invests all of that by the will of the majority, it speaks something of that culture. And so we have this idea in our text today. have a little discernment and see what we value. Now, let me give you a point by contrast. Without turning there, just recall the attention and care that was given to the construction of the tabernacle and the temple later in the record of Scripture. It was similar, right? Uh, There's whole chapters given for God's specific instructions for the people to gather the most technologically advanced artisans, to carve the most beautiful things in gold, the most precious of metals, the most expensive of fabrics, the most elaborate um, techniques in order to make something of value and permanence that will represent uh, His presence, in this case, among them. And when the people poured their collective efforts according to the Word of God into this enterprise... It represented what Babel tried to counterfeit, that is, that man ought to honor, serve, worship, and dedicate his talent, his treasure, his abilities, his technology to the glory of the Lord, and invest those things in light of his holy scripture, not to use them to try to subvert God's created order. Finally, what did they choose to build? A city and a tower. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. This is not unlike our day. There's cities and towers, as it were, points of prominence, high places. We were driving out west for vacation recently, and I noticed that people still have a fascination with high places. Uh, Town after town, as you drive west, if you look at the highest point, there'll be something up there. Maybe the name of the city, maybe a sculpture of Lewis and Clark, maybe an ancient uh, war chief from a native tribe that was famous in that region. Um, Even in Billings, we noted that there's a statue of Mary. A Catholic has placed a statue of Mary, and my wife promptly remembered a a, a song called Mary on the Mountain, and sure enough, it was about that high place. So that's something that's a little bit familiar to us, but notice what Isaiah chapter 2 says about this idea of cities and towers, high places, and so forth. Verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And notice this list. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. The cedars of Lebanon were the pride of Lebanon. They were so proud of these cedars, they were famous for them. What is the pride of our land? Uh, Against all the oaks of Bashan, again, a picture of strength. Against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills. Where is the pride of man invested? Verse 15, against every high tower and against every fortified wall. Do you see what's happening? In the day of the Lord, He will declare war on the places where man has invested pride and patriotism and things that are independent of God's Word and are other than His glory. If man has taken glory in something else, God will declare war on those places and He will tear them down. Verse 16, against all the ships of Tarshish, Ships representing commerce, and a humming economy, and prosperity, and against all the beautiful craft. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of His majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. These cities and towers represent the splendor and terror of man. And what do you think will happen when you set up a, context, a contest between the splendor and terror of man and the splendor and terror of God? Well, the Babylonians figured it out in a real short order. Why was this town and tower built such as it was? Notice in chapter 4 we have some reasons. This is the second major point today, purpose and motive. They said, "Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth." In this short verse we find that the purposes and motives behind the Tower of Babel were religious in nature, self-exalting in nature as we've already mentioned, and self-preserving. In nature. That was their intention. There was a religious element, there was a self-exalting element, and there was a self-preserving element. First of all, religious. What was the purpose of these ancient ziggurats? Or if this was a different structure, certainly it had a similar view and purpose. Was it in fact the goal of the people to build all the way up to heaven as if it was a height measurement? No. Typically the top of the ziggurat would be flat, now, you could get a little higher if you kept going with an Egyptian-type pyramid, but the purpose of these ziggurats was that there would be something that would take place on the top. Sacrifices would be offered to appease the gods. Stairways would rise, stairways would come down. And this was a religious idea which was expressed in this architecture. Its top is in the heavens. That is to say that upon this structure represents trying to twist heaven's arm, manipulating their concept of the divine, their concept of the transcendent, trying to please the gods, as it were, trying to get for themselves security, trying to acquire for themselves um, through this man-made religious workspace ascent, hope for their future. This, in fact, is the shape of our text. I noticed a, a commentary pointed this out as I was studying this week. Notice in the text we have a record of the unity of man and then they build this, uh, they build this tower and city so you have kind of an ascending order there. And then there's a plateau where God comes down and he assesses the situation. He delivers judgment. And there's a, a, de, a deconstruction, if you will. Uh, he removes their ability to continue to build and then he disperses. So even the shape of the text almost in literary form mirrors this ziggurat type image and this was in a concept that these ancients would have known the utility of the ancient ziggurat was to provide a stairway for the descent of the gods it represented access to them we're in this structure and by the events that take place there the religious ceremonies and so forth We are inviting the gods to have favor, to step down. We're making a footstool, a ladder for them to be welcomed into our midst and so forth. That's the religious element. There's also a self-exalting element. Remember last week, we recalled Ephesians 3.15, which says that uh, Paul gives thanks to the Lord of whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Uh, Evidence to this was given in the previous chapter, We have the names of every family, as it were, represented in that chapter. Names that were established by God. Clans, peoples, lands, and languages that are established by the sovereign hand of God. Now, Babel, the purpose and motive was to exalt self, to name oneself, not to honor and recognize the name of the Lord and His right to name us. They said, "Uh, let us build ourselves a city, And a tower, again, verse 4, with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And so here in this self-naming idea, we have these people exercising their right to create a society to serve their own glory rather than the glory of God. Their own fame, their own renown, their own assurance of a hopeful future. If you turn over just one chapter to chapter 12, What does the Lord say to Abram? He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Here's a question. Did Abraham make his own name great through his accomplishments, or did God make Abraham's name great through God's accomplishments through Abraham? Which one? Yes, the second. God made Abraham's name great. Again, In the case of David, another significant son, God made a covenant with David and he said, I will make your name great. The greatness of one's name is owed to the work of the Lord. You and I, if you're a believer in this room, will share in the greatness of our God, but not because of anything we have accomplished or done. Have you ever heard the idea of an artist trying to achieve immortality through what he uh, builds or what he designs, you know, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael, and all the Ninja Turtles are recognizable household names, not just because they were incredibly, you know, a well-done uh, action film and, you know, TV show by the same name, but indeed because they're all classical artists. So we recognize their names And in this way, man fancies himself to share in a bit of immortality. His name continues beyond him. That is his fame, his renown, if he accomplishes something great. This is futile and foolish. God will suffer no competition to his own name and renown. There is no greatness to be found unless it is in the work of the Lord. The only greatness to be found is in the work of the Lord. So we have this religious impulse, this self-exalting impulse, and then finally self-preserving impulse. We've mentioned this already. The fear was, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This again, as we noted, contravenes the word of God. God had commanded them to subdue the whole world and fill it in the cultural mandate. But why did they disobey him? They did so in the name of security. They wanted to be safe, so they disobeyed God's word. Do we do, any, do we disobey God's word today in the interests of personal security and safety? You better believe we do. Two political examples jump immediately to mind: socialism and balance of power, foreign policy. So we presume we have authority in every nation on earth just about as the American Empire. And why do we want to have one hundred and twenty military bases? if not to keep us safe? And this I'm picking on the right wing a little bit here, but how many have heard from your campaigning politicians. we got to fight them over there so you don't have to fight them over here. And you almost never hear in those conversations whether or not the word of God gives us legitimate jurisdiction in a, any one of 150 nations. Uh, why is that not a concern? Well, security is more important to us, apparently, than the word of God, who might, say, might in, instruct us, your prerogative and jurisdiction is limited to a false, far smaller sphere. And you're, in fact presuming on God's territory by this uh, kind of foreign policy. That is a real consideration to take seriously. Now let's consider it on the domestic side, another political impulse, socialism. Let's use the power of the state to take from the rich so that I can have social security, so that I can have a secure future, so that I don't have to work as hard, so that I can be assured if I need health care, I can have it without earning and working for it necessarily myself. And you see, if if we justify theft by... Uh, on the ground of security, if we justify transgressing God's jurisdictional parameters uh, on the ground of security, what are we doing? We are disregarding God's law because we want to preserve ourselves. And this was what was going on in the purpose and motive of Babel. Final point today. What are the consequences of doing these kind of things? Planning to subvert and having purposes and motives that are, are... in conflict with the Word of God. Well, this welcomes the day of the Lord. The Lord comes down indeed. They wanted the Lord to come down. Well, not the Lord. Their concept of God to visit them on the ziggurat. Well, be careful what you wish for. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the children of man man, had built. The Lord indeed comes down. There's some irony here. Uh, The Lord needed to stoop low. It's kind of language. God is everywhere. He knew what they were doing, but this language indicates that their puny attempts had not gotten one step closer to twisting the arm of the Lord. No, in fact, the Lord would bring his day of reckoning and judgment on their vain attempts, their pagan worship. And so the the first element of the Lord's coming, his parousia, if you will, the day of the Lord is to evaluate the situation. He comes down, and by the standard and measure of his word and covenant, He analyzes the situation. He does this later through his prophets. And he sees what the children of man have wrought, and he judges it by his standard of righteousness. Does it stand up or does it fall short? It falls short. He says as much in verse 6, The Lord said, Behold, there are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. So the Lord declares that divine intervention is necessary. Otherwise, the intentions of these people may come to a fearful fruition. This should not be taken as these people will almost be as powerful as me or they could become like God. No, this should be taken as if these people are left to their own devices, their corruption will increase to the point where they will threaten their own existence just like mankind did before the flood. Therefore, in the interest of the messianic hope for mankind's future, in the defense of the seed of the Messiah, the Lord will intervene. And He will frustrate their evil and their wickedness. Evaluation, declaration, and then this divine disabling. Come, let us go down. Remember, come let us build. Now we have a a corresponding... Intent, action taken. The people said, come let us make bricks. Come let us build. God says, come let us go down. Let us go visit uh, uh, this futile attempt with judgment. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. The Lord comes down and evaluates. He declares and he disables their work. Let us go down versus let us build. The Lord dispersed versus the fear, lest we be dispersed. The ironic ironic parallels continue. The people wanted to make a name for themselves, yet this project will forever be known as Babel, the failed tower, the stupid enterprise, the ridiculous attempt to twist God's arm. Yes, the Lord comes, and in the day of the Lord, judgment is forthcoming, and the people must answer for their actions, and the very thing they feared, He will bring upon them. This is the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord in judgment, an answering, a reckoning for the people's transgression of His law. Now they must answer for their anti covenant, for their anti creation attempts, for their technology and ability to subdue the earth misused, for their faith in what they could accomplish, for their pagan religion, for their attempt to reach God in their own efforts, for their seeking their own glory at the expense of the glory of God and for their compromising of God's word in the interest of preserving themselves, now they will be judged. Does the story end there? It does not. From these nations, the Lord calls out a significant son. As we mentioned before, the Lord said to Abraham in 12.1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's land to the land that I will show you. You know, this passage in Genesis 11 anticipates ideas that will unfold through the course of Scripture. Let me mention a couple of them. Let me turn you to two of them. Genesis 28. Genesis 28. This is an amazing parallel passage to the futile attempt of Babel. This is the account of Jacob at Bethel. Notice verse 12, what happens. And he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said... going to announce his name. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Jacob. So you see, there is a ladder between heaven and earth, but it will not be erected by twisting the arm of the divine. It exists only where God's name is championed, and it exists only by his design. And this is a ladder of his making. My favorite fulfillment verse, or one of my favorites, comes in John chapter 1, a detail perhaps easy to overlook, but when we interpret it in light of this verse, it is indeed quite amazing. Do you remember, as Jesus is calling his disciples, one of them is quite cynical. But the Lord prophesies to him, I saw you under the fig tree, and so forth, and he's pretty impressed by that. Who is this guy who has this uncanny ability to see beyond the capacity of a normal human? And Jesus says, in so many words, "You have not seen anything yet. Verse 51, he said to him, and so who is this? This is uh, the calling of Nathanael, one of the disciples. Jesus had seen him under the fig tree, supernaturally. And he says, you see this and you believe, you will see greater things than these. Jesus said to him, Jesus says to Nathan, Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, we started a band way back in the day called Elevator, and it's embarrassing to kind of talk about. And uh, after I came up with the name, we needed a justification for the name. And I, got, I was looking through the Bible, and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Cool. There's something like an elevator. There's something like a ladder, a connection between heaven and earth that God has established. But what is the termination point? Is it Babel? Is it the ziggurat of the pagan peoples? Is it the pagan practices of our day? Is it Washington, D.C.? Will that connect us to hope for the future? Is it the technology that our advanced society boasts? Is it the United Nations? All of these things will disintegrate and be reduced at the coming of the Lord, in history and at the end of time, to foolish babble, confusing vain attempts. But there is a connection between heaven and earth. And Jesus said, I am He. I am it. No one comes to the Father but by Me, says Jesus Christ. There is no arm-twisting of the Father that you can manage of your own accord. You are a sinner, and your sins must be satisfied A substitute must die in your place. The wrath of the Almighty can only be appeased through substitute sacrifice that is both God and man, perfect, without spot, without blemish, perfectly righteous in His probation and His calling on earth. Therefore, the only ladder of ascent between our lowly state on this earth and the hope of eternal life and a society, a new heaven, a new earth, a new city, that promises glorious unity and provision and peace and security and hope for all time is in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message that Babel anticipates. Genesis 28 gives further prophecy along these lines by revealing in this prophetic dream to Jacob who was in covenant with Yahweh that there was a way, But it was only through him when God's name is upheld and by his servant to come in the elect line, the significant son of significant sons, Jesus Christ. Daniel sees a vision similarly in Daniel 7. We mention it quite often from this pulpit. The ancient of days is there and there is one ascending to him. Does he do so on the Tower of Babel? Does he do so on the technological might that we can boast? Does he do so on the political hope of the next administration. No, he does so on a cloud of glory after he's accomplished redemption. It's fulfilled in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus, the Son of Man, ascends to receive a kingdom before the Father. And then this leads to Acts chapter 2. Let's close here. Turn with me to Acts 2. Jesus has ascended upon the ladder, if you will, established between heaven and earth, having satisfied in his work of redemption The terms of unity between heaven and this fallen realm. And the very next thing, in redemptive historical terms, that happens is Pentecost. The day when Pentecost arrives is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Why? What was the significance of this event? Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, they were dwelling there, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. Notice, multitude gathered, representatives from all kinds of nations. They hear a sound. What is it? They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and so on and so forth, Egypt, Libya, Uh, belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Saints in this room, this is the reversal of Babel, if you will. This is the reincorporation of all nations into the one unified people of God. This is the gathering of the coastland peoples in in, uh, initial form, As the gospel goes forward into the tents of Shem, who had a covenant relationship with the Lord, who was the elect line of the seat of the Messiah, and so forth, and this work is going forth today. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is being translated by Wycliffe Bible translators, just to name one, into hundreds, yes, thousands of languages. And as it does so, there is a mighty work of redemption taking place, whereby, as Revelation goes on to declare in even more detail, The Lord is gathering for Himself from the coastland peoples, representatives from every tribe and tongue and nation, not to populate the city of man represented by Babylon and Babel and Assyria and Nineveh, no, but to populate the city of God. Right now, sojourners passing through, citizens of this holy kingdom, but in the future, when that city is fully realized, the new heavens and the new earth, indeed, New Jerusalem, indeed, the bride of Christ. Let us close in thankfulness and prayer. Father, we thank you for the promises of Holy Scripture that reveal the glories of ages past that are real and established in Christ our Lord. Encourage us, Lord Jesus, by your fingerprints on all of the finely tuned details of history that are recorded in your word, Give us grace and strength to proclaim these truths, Lord, in our day and age with renewed assurance, faith, and confidence, tearing down the Babels by proclaiming the Word of God as it were, and placing our faith and hope in the only Savior and Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let us suffer no imposters. Let us be found faithful upon your return, the parousia, the coming of our Lord. And let us, Lord Jesus, be welcomed into your presence by the precious blood that our Lamb shed, enjoying that perfect fellowship and reunion with the Father one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Until that day, may your Spirit bless us and keep us, make your face to shine upon us, lift up your countenance upon us, and give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.